Last week we looked at God's love from Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, that God's love is really the guarantee of our hope that we have in Christ, and it's a sure and certain hope because it is in Jesus Christ, and God's love is eternal, irrevocable, unchanging, and so we can have absolute certainty uh, because of God's love for us that our hope is sure. Uh, what are the promises given to us in Scripture will come to pass. Uh, even we read last week that we will be delivered from the wrath of God to come. And that's God's final judgment, His righteous wrath upon those who do not turn to His Son in repentance and faith. And so we know that we can have a hope that will absolutely not put us to shame, a hope that will not disappoint us because our hope is inseparably bound to God's love for us. Our hope is anchored, again, in the perfect sovereign, unchanging, irrevocable, eternal love of God. And we took note of three features of the love of God that really confirms and solidifies our hope. We saw the demonstration of God's love in Romans 5, verses 6 through 8, which is really the supreme evidence of God's love, the demonstration of his love towards sinners, undeserving sinners, the ungodly, remember, we're enemies, we're weak, those who are powerless, incapable of coming to God in our own efforts and merits, but when, when, while we were in that condition, God saved us. And so it's the supreme evidence of God's love as demonstrated upon the cross of Christ. We also saw the efficacy of God's love, and that's really the power of God to uh, produce an effect or a desired outcome. And we saw that in two ways. Uh, the deliverance from wrath, deliverance from wrath to come, and deliverance by intercession, what Christ is currently doing at the right hand of the Father as he's ascended after he's complained. Uh, as after he's completed his mission upon the earth in saving those whom the Father had given him to die for and to save, and he rose on their behalf, and then he ascended, he's at the right hand of the Father, and he's interceding for us. So that any accusations that are thrown by Satan, Christ is there saying, no, he's mine, she's mine, not guilty, justified, not condemned. My blood has covered and atoned for their sins. So <clears throat> we even read in, later on in Romans, what charge can any bring against God's elect? None. And so we have Christ's intercessory ministry that is delivering us, and we'll look forward to even future deliverance from God's final and future wrath. Lastly, we saw not just the demonstration of God's love, the efficacy of God's love, but the result of God's love, what that should produce within the hearts of those who know God and love God and are loved by God, and that's the exaltation of God's love. Uh, that we are to boast in his love. We are to delight in it and find joy in it. And so the demonstration of God's love, the efficacy of God's love, the result of God's love is what we looked at last week. And this this week, this afternoon, uh, I've titled this message, Saved from What? What are we saved from? What do we need to be saved from and why? There's There's a couple questions that are important in life. Number one, what are we saved from? What are we saved for as Christians? That's important to know. We're not just saved so that we know we're saved and we can go on living life however we want. No, we've been saved from something for something else, for someone else. We've been purchased, redeemed. We're now slaves of Christ and of God to bear good fruit for his glory. And so our focus will be on this afternoon the the question of what are we saved from? What are we saved from? And the answer is we're saved from the wrath of God. And if you're not saved... The answer to what do I need to be saved from is the wrath of God. John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The wrath of God remains upon him. 
Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's a present demonstration and display of the wrath of God. Romans 2.5 says, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So there we see the wrath of God is being piled up, and we see that God's judgment is righteous. Romans 3 verse 5 says, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is the God who inflicts wrath unrighteous? And the answer is, of course not. And there we see again, God is the one who will inflict righteous wrath. Romans 5 verse 9, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. That's through Jesus Christ. That's the only way to be saved from the wrath of God to come. Romans 9 22, And what if God, wanting to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath, having been prepared for destruction? Now, that's a hard verse to read. It's a hard verse to swallow. It's a hard verse to even teach and understand. But that's what God's word says. Wanting to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, he endured with the much patience vessels of wrath, having been prepared for destruction. God is sovereign over all things, and yet man has a will to reject God and not obey him and is accountable to God at the same time. Romans 12, verse 19 says, Never take your own revenge, beloved. Instead, leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Ephesians 5, verse 6 says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And Colossians 3, verse 6 says something similar. On account of these things, ungodly living, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. The wrath of God is a certain and sure thing, and it's coming upon those who do not repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ. They're called the sons of disobedience. When was the last time you contemplated or reflected on the wrath of God? Do you only view the gospel and your salvation as the forgiveness of sins, looking merely at the outcome or the result of your salvation, what you get out of it? It is good to remind ourselves of not just the outcome or result of our salvation, but what it entailed, what it required how it was accomplished, and why it was necessary. And so we must not put away or file away the wrath of God from our worldview, from our understanding, from our study, even as Christians, or rather especially as Christians, who've been given illumination to understand the scriptures and to properly understand the wrath of God. When we talk about the wrath of God, we have to understand the reality of death. What does God say about death? How did death come about? Why is there death? So we have to look to Scripture because Scripture alone reveals its origin, its significance, and what must happen for it to be defeated. The Bible distinguishes between spiritual death, physical death, and eternal death. Spiritual death involves alienation from God, separation from God. A person can be physically alive, yet spiritually dead. 
In fact, all people are conceived and born into a state of spiritual separation from God. In Psalm 51, verse 5, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. This happens because of imputed sin from Adam, our representative head of mankind. Imputed sin from Adam and inherited sin nature from our descendants. In Ephesians 2, verse 1, the Apostle Paul had spiritual death in mind when he told the Ephesian saints that you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Speaking of their state before they knew Christ, you were spiritually dead. In other words, Paul says the Ephesians were alive physically, but were at the same time, though physically alive, spiritually dead, alienated from God, separated from Him. That's spiritual death. Physical death, we all understand. It involves the cessation of bodily life. When physical organs such as the brain, the heart, cease to function, physical death occurs. At this point, there's a real separation between a person's body and his soul spirit. A person's body and his soul spirit. In James chapter 2, verse 26, James declared that the body without the spirit is dead. In other words, uh, you need... The body is composed of both the, the flesh, the physical part, and the spirit and the soul. And at physical death, those two things separate. Ecclesiastes 12.7 says concerning physical death, it says the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. And the dust there referring to the body. So that's physical death. Lastly, eternal death. Eternal death is punishment and banishment from God for eternity. It's eternal. This awaits those who physically die while being spiritually dead. Unbelievers, those who die in unbelief, will experience this death, eternal death, separated from God's presence. They will face the lake of fire forever, Revelation 20. And in Revelation 20, verse 6, the Apostle John refers to this as the second death, However, not everyone will experience eternal death. Those who believe in Jesus Christ will not experience the second death or eternal death. Therefore, only those who are delivered by the gracious work of Jesus Christ will escape eternal death. And so the Bible gives us the commentary on the reality of of death. Spiritual death, physical death, eternal death. And when we talk about the wrath of God, we also have to understand the reality of what brings about death. What causes death? The Bible reveals the cause of death. Contrary to maybe what you've heard in school or what you were taught, contrary to secular worldviews and thinking, death is not the result of natural processes that come from random chance universe that you live in. Rather, sin is the cause of death. Sin is the cause of death. Death happens because the first man, Adam, sinned against the Creator. Adam was told that he would surely die if he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17. And Romans 5, 12 states that just as through one man, referring to Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. We also have to understand that 
death is unnatural. Death is unnatural. God did not create man to die. And death was not an original part of the creation, Genesis 1 and 2. That's why mourning and tears are often associated with death in the Bible. Jesus, if you remember, wept over Lazarus. Death really is a disruption to life. In this fallen world, death may seem natural since it's all around us. It happens every day, every second of every day. But God did not create man to die, and a day is coming when death will be defeated. Death will not be present in the coming new heavens and new earth. Death, therefore, is an enemy that needs to be conquered. In regard to Jesus' coming kingdom reign, the Apostle Paul declared in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty six, the last enemy to be abolished is death. In Revelation 20, verse 14, the Apostle John revealed that death will be thrown into the lake of fire. So as hard as it is to imagine in this fallen world, death is headed for defeat because of Jesus. The believer can rejoice with Paul in saying, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-four through 57 Death is an inescapable reality that ushers you into judgment before your Creator. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for men to die once, and then comes judgment. Death is not a transition to a peaceful non-existence. Death is a transition from one state of existence to another. Annihilationism, soul sleep, reincarnation are all false doctrines that are contrary to God's truth and word. Neither is heaven the default destiny for everyone. Everyone's not going to end up in heaven. For unbelievers, death is and should be a fearful thing. Jesus warned in Matthew 10, verse 28, that people should fear God, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. This is the truth about death from God, from his word, which is authoritative and perfect. Spurgeon said, he who is own, he who is his own guide is guided by a fool. Will you listen to what God's word says? Or will you be guided by your foolishness? He's laid out for you the path to blessedness, the path to deliverance. He's told you who the Savior is, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's told you that you are to repent, turn from your evil, wicked ways and your unrighteousness and turn to Christ and what he has done for you if you would repent and believe in him. And also when it comes to the wrath of God, some people will attempt to pit truth and love against each other as if God is unloving to display his wrath in the ways that he does. And why is it an eternal wrath for a small sin that I've done? So they'll try to pit truth and love against each other. However, we cannot separate truth and love. They are not at odds with one another. To speak the truth is to love. And to love is to speak the truth to those around us. It is loving to tell others the truth about death. It is loving to tell others about the wrath of God so that they know and that they're lovingly warned about what they must be saved from and why. If there was a burning building, I'm sure you would go tell your family members to get out. 
we are to follow the example of Jesus. Matthew twenty five forty six. Jesus warned, These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. John five twenty four. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. And it says in a few verses later in John five twenty eight and 29, he goes on to talk about the bodily resurrection of both believers and unbelievers. You will physically die. There will be a separation of body and soul and spirit. And one day, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, your body will be resurrected for judgment. One to enter into the eternal kingdom, a body fit for life in the new heavens and new earth, and another, a body fit for the lake of fire. He says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming, John five twenty and 29, in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those committed to the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Resurrection to eternal life or resurrection to eternal death. Jesus talked a lot about hell. And we wouldn't want to characterize him as being unloving. Rather, it is loving to talk to people about hell because it points them to the only Savior this world has. And his name is Jesus Christ. We have to give people the biblical and God-given diagnosis before we can tell them their only solution. We also have to keep in mind that people don't get saved by being afraid of hell. People do not get saved by being afraid of hell. That may play a part in it, but that is not what saves them. Hell is merely the dark backdrop upon which the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ shines. People are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They look to Christ to save them. Any other way is a false way. Any other way is a false gospel because it doesn't tell you what you need to be saved from. Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Belief in any other gospel or any other religion will lead you to hell. That means salvation by works will lead you to hell. Galatians 1, 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul says, Even if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to the gospel we have proclaimed to you, let him be accursed, damned. In the very next verse, it says, As we have said before, so I say again, now, if any man is proclaiming to you a gospel contrary to what you received, let him be accursed. You preach a different gospel, you're accursed. And those who respond to that false gospel are deceived. We also have to understand that the wrath of God is a present, past, future, and final reality. There's different ways to understand the wrath of God. This began with Genesis 3, the fall. Adam sinned. Mankind fell into the curse of the fall. That's a demonstration of the the righteous wrath of God upon sin. We have Zechariah verses 1 and 2. The men have been studying this. It says there, in regards to the nation of Israel, it says, Yahweh was very wrathful against your fathers. God displayed his wrath through different means and through different instruments through to his people, uh, the nation of Israel. Yahweh is very wrathful against your fathers. 
Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteous men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's a present display of the wrath of God where God will give over people to their sins. Let them go their own way, which will lead to further ungodliness and the celebration of what God hates. Revelation 6 through 19, chapter 6 through 19, speaks of another uh, element of God's wrath that we see in Scripture, a seven-year global tribulation period where the wrath of God is unleashed upon the entire earth and it's going to be undeniable who is in control and who is all-powerful and who is righteous. Revelation 20, verse 15, we have the great white throne judgment. It says there, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is another name for eternal final hell. That's the future eternal wrath of God. And that is going to be our focus this afternoon. Hell and the eternal wrath of God. The future eternal wrath of God. We'll see that God's wrath is necessary and consistent with who he is. We'll see that God's wrath is necessary and consistent with who he is. To lower God to the place of man or to ourselves or to think of God as simply one of us, or to diminish God to what is right in our own eyes, to what is fair and good according to our standard and what we would like, is to have a wrong and misconceived understanding of who God is, and consequently, who we are. We have to view God's wrath in light of His sovereign authority, His absolute perfection, His utterly majestic holiness, his flawless purity, his inherent moral and ethical separateness from sin and darkness and evil. It's been said that all that is evil is, has been defined as not God. First John 1.5 says that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And so we'll see that the wrath of God is necessary and consistent with three things. God's character, God's word, and God's gospel. The wrath of God is necessary and consistent with God's character, God's word, and God's gospel. First, God's character. And this is not going to be a very comprehensive message in terms of each of these areas, but I'll touch on each one of them. Hell and God's wrath are consistent with who God is. Hell and God's wrath are consistent with who God is. Hell is necessary because the holiness of God demands that there be a hell. The righteousness and justice of God demands that there be a hell. Even the love of God demands that there be a hell. God cannot love that which is evil. The eternality of God demands that there be an eternal hell. We cannot just pick and choose and make up the God of our liking. That would be a fractured God and not the God of the Bible. God's character, his perfections, his attributes all work together in indivisible harmony. In fact, God's attributes are identical to his very essence. Each of and all of his perfections are his essence and they complement each other. They qualify each other. In other words, there's no contradictions in God. You can't affirm a God of love and yet deny a God of wrath. That would be to reject the one true and living God, to the wrong understanding of who God is. 
Hebrews 2, verses 2 and 3 says, For if the word spoken through the angels proved unalterable, and every trespass and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? There we see that God's justice, <clears throat> uh, we see God's justice and the just penalty that is due to those who trespass and disobey his word. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In that one verse, we see both God's holiness and wrath and also God's grace. And it's the same God. The wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's holiness and wrath and God's grace side by side. Perfect harmony. Romans 12.19 says, Leave room for the wrath of God. Again, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. There you see God's wrath and God's sovereignty over all things. Psalm 5, verses 4 and 5. says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil does not sojourn with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all workers of iniquity. Psalm 7, verse 11. says, God is a righteous judge. And a God who has indignation every day. Psalm 11, verses 5 through 7. Yahweh tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. May he rain snares upon the wicked. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For Yahweh is righteous. He loves righteousness. And so in that verse, we see God's holiness, God's righteousness. This is who God is. We cannot pick and choose what we like. God's holiness and man's sinfulness demands that there be divine justice. That is, wrath be upon sin. The wrath of God is necessary and consistent with who God is. With his love, with his grace, with his holiness, with his righteousness, with his sovereignty, with all of who he is. And secondly, we'll see that the wrath of God is necessary and consistent with his word, with God's word. What does God's word say about hell? What does God's word say about his righteous wrath? God's word reveals that hell is a real place. It's not made up. It's a real place. Matthew 8, verse 12, Jesus says to those who are not part of his kingdom that they will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a location. Again, it says in Matthew 22, verse 13, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is a real place. Luke 16, 28 speaks of people coming to a place of torment. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in a place called hell. Matthew 23, says, Jesus says to the scribes and Pharisees, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Second Thessalonians 1.9 speaks of hell as a location away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Yet we also have to remember that God created hell. But God is also sovereign over it. Not Satan. Hell is not a place where Satan rules and reigns. It's a place where Satan will be judged and cast into as well. 
Satan will be in hell, Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And there will be those who will join Satan and the false prophet and the beast. God's word reveals not only that hell is a real place, but that hell is eternal separation from God and his kingdom. Revelation 22 verses 14 and 15 says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may be, so that they may have the authority to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. They're separated from God and his kingdom. God's word also reveals that hell is a fiery furnace. A fiery furnace. Matthew 13, 42. All the unbelieving will be thrown into the fiery furnace. God's word reveals that hell is an unquenchable fire. Matthew 3, 12. Jesus says, uh, says Jesus will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the shaft with unquenchable fire, referring to the unbelieving. Unquenchable fire, never-ending, unrelenting fire. Mark 9.43, Jesus says, If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire. God's word also reveals that hell is a lake of fire. Revelation 19.20 speaks of the beast and the false prophet being thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. They're thrown alive into the lake of fire. Hell is conscious awareness. In other words, you will be alive in hell if you're cast there. Revelation 20, verse 10 speaks of Satan being thrown there. Revelation 20, verse 14 speaks of death and Hades being thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 20, verse 15 speaks of all unbelievers being thrown into the lake of fire as well. God's word reveals that hell is day and night, all day long, all night long. Revelation 14, 11, there will be no rest day and night. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Revelation 20, verse 10. God's word also reveals that hell is eternal. Matthew 25, 41 speaks of the sheep-goat judgment. This happens after the tribulation. As Christ returns, there's going to be a judgment and he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Jude, chapter, Jude 1 7 describes it as punishment of eternal fire. No pause, no relief, unending forever. It's been said that hell will be as long as heaven exists. And since eternal life is eternal life, so will be eternal death and eternal hell. God's word reveals that we deserve hell. God's word reveals that we deserve hell. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. It's what we've rightly earned and worked for. So we see that we deserve hell. Yet this same God who shows long-suffering and patience and kindness and not casting us directly into this lake of fire. We see his common goodness, his common grace to all of us. 
I think it was Thomas Watson who said, every breath that we draw in, we suck in mercy. So the same God who shows mercy to us by giving us our very breath is the same God who is restraining his righteous wrath towards us who rightly deserve it. God's word reveals that not only that we deserve hell, but hell is, is fair and right. Second Thessalonians 1, 5 through 9 says, This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering, since it is right for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give rest to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven, with his mighty angels in flaming fire, executing vengeance on those who do not know God, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Hell is deserved. Hell is fair. Hell is right. And hell, according to scripture, is associated with three everlasting negative consequences. Punishment, destruction, and banishment. The wicked are punished and will receive retribution for their deeds. Hell also involves destruction, which means ruin and loss. And hell includes banishment from God's eternal kingdom. God's word reveals for the unbeliever their need for a savior from the wrath of God. God's word reveals for the believer the path and practice of walking and worship in light of being delivered from the wrath of God. And so the wrath of God is necessary and consistent with God's character and God's word. And lastly, it is necessary and consistent with God's gospel. Romans 1, verses 16 through 17. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous will live by faith. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed in Christ, and the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And what does that mean? It means that in Christ, God judges and pours out His wrath upon His Son for our sins and imputes His Son's perfect righteousness to us on the basis of faith so that we are justified before Him without Him compromising His holiness nor His justice. All sin will be paid for. God's wrath upon every sinner will be completely satisfied, either in Christ or by the unrepentant sinner in eternal hell. And so what Christ did upon the cross for us was He took away eternal wrath. Just upon those few hours He was upon the cross, He bore all of that. As our substitute, Jesus bore the very punishment, the Father's wrath in all its fullness that was due to his people. The only Savior is Jesus Christ, and salvation is only found in him. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, 1 Timothy 1.15. It's a trustworthy saying. And he will save his people from their sins. Matthew 1.21. And 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, God raised from the dead Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. 
Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name, speaking about the name of Jesus, under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Only Jesus can rescue us from the wrath to come because he has already satisfied God's wrath for us. The wrath of God is necessary and consistent with his gospel. And so what are the implications of this? Worship, thanksgiving, godly living, and godly living in unity for believers. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3 says, Walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called, keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is worship. This is thanksgiving. This is godly living in unity. Philippians one twenty seven. Only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances, that you're standing firm. Again, this idea of godly living in unity, that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, contending together for the faith of the gospel. Christians are a united people who live for God, who worship God, who give thanks to God. Romans 12, 1 and 2, because of the mercies of God, Present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. Knowing about the wrath of God and eternal hell and that we've been delivered from that and rescued from that leads to worship, leads to thanksgiving, leads to godly living, leads to unity within the body of Christ. Secondly, it reminds us of the seriousness of sin. It reminds us of the seriousness of sin. We weren't saved so that we could go on sinning. May it never be, Paul says. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? We see the grace of God, the forgiveness through Christ. Our hearts are transformed, our hearts are changed, our wills are changed to pursue holiness, to turn away from sin and to turn towards righteousness and that would please our Heavenly Father. It reminds us of the seriousness of sin, that even one sin, not even in act, one sin in thought and God's righteous judgment would be deserving. It reminds us of the seriousness of sin also reminds us of the local church. And how does it remind us of the local church? We see it through the ordinances. Baptism, believer's baptism, being fully immersed in the water, going down and coming up to newness of life, that we're now dead to sin. We've been born again, alive to the, by the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit. And in communion. What do we do when we partake of communion? We remember what Christ has done for us in bearing the full wrath of God on our behalf in raising from the grave in victory over sin, death, and Satan. And so in the local church, even the ordinances reflect sin and salvation. And it reminds us of who we are as a people 
purchased by Christ and His blood. And we ought to be a thankful people, a united people. Another thing is we should proclaim the full gospel. We need to proclaim the full gospel. It's one message. And so we must proclaim the entire message. We have to remember that we don't preach the wrath of God because we hate people. And don't let anyone make you think by preaching the wrath of God that you hate them. It's not their judgment of you that matters. God knows your heart. We don't preach the wrath of God because we hate people. We preach the wrath of God because we love them. To not make known the wrath of God is to not love or to not proclaim the gospel. Do not be ashamed to speak in love about the wrath of God. It is loving to do so. It's been said, if you're ever tempted to compromise God's word in the interest of reaching someone you love, you've forgotten who reaches them. We're only called to be faithful to proclaim the message. And when we proclaim the message, we're to proclaim the full message as ambassadors of Christ. We don't change the message. We don't edit the message. We don't alter it. It's not our message. Steve Lawson has said, quote, It is easy to go to hell. What do you have to do to go to hell? He asked. Nothing. Just remain as you are. End quote. The broad path leads to destruction. J.C. Ryle has said, quote, Never worry about who will be offended if you speak the truth. Worry about who will be misled, who will be deceived, who will be destroyed if you don't. Knowing the wrath of God and eternal hell should compel us to present the full gospel and to do it in love. And so we see an attack on God's character, the holiness of God and the wrath of God are not against one another. They're two sides of the same coin. We see this attack on God's word, where, <clears throat> but we know that God is not a liar. And God is who he says he is. There's also an attack on God's gospel. But if there is no hell, there is no gospel. If there is no wrath of God, there is no Christ crying out upon the cross, it is finished. Lastly, we, I didn't get to this, but it's a, also an attack on God's glory to deny the wrath of God or eternal hell and to not preach it and teach it is an attack on God's glory, God's character, God's word, and God's gospel. If you turn with me to Romans chapter 9. I'm going to read beginning in verse 16, down to verse 24. It says, So then it does not depend on the one who wills or the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up in order to demonstrate my power in you and in order that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Will you say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Will the thing molded say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Or does not the potter have authority over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And what if God, wanting to demonstrate his wrath 
and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath, having been prepared for destruction, and in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. The closing verses that I read refers to us, Gentiles. God's plan of redemption is amazing, but it involves both salvation and his wrath. There is no salvation if there is no wrath that we need to be saved from. And it's for God to display in a greater way to all the earth his glory. And to try to take that away is to take away his glory in revealing his mercy, his grace. God is both a God of love and at the same time fully a God of wrath. Again, none of his attributes, none of his perfections contradict one another. They're in perfect harmony. And we can approach this doctrine from many different angles. We can look at the body and soul spirit. We can look at the different phases, the resurrection. We can look at the eternal kingdom, the kingdom of God. But the reality remains the same. No matter how you study it, how you approach it, if you're looking to God's word, the reality remains the same. Hell is a real place, and the only escape from the wrath of God is through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who absorbed and fully satisfied God's wrath for all who would repent and believe in him. So again, what are we saved from? We've been saved from the wrath of God, by God, for God's glory. And God's not some egomaniac who wants everything for himself. But this does display that God is sovereign over all things and that he rightly deserves all things for himself. He is the creator. We are the clay. And so we've been saved from God's wrath by God's grace for God's glory. And so for those who are believers, we praise God. We praise God for our salvation, not just the result of it, but as we understand more and more the wrath of God that was born in the Son, who is God himself for us, and it fully satisfied God's wrath for us, we love God more. And as we understand that, as we look around to our family and friends and neighbors, we understand that the wrath of God still abides upon them. And as those who have been called out of darkness through hearing the word of Christ, we know what they need to hear. We would be faithful to proclaim the full gospel God's holiness, his wrath, his righteousness, his justice, yet also his mercy, his grace, his love. His mercy is greater than all our sins. And we praise God for that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this day that you've created for us. We thank you for the people that you've placed in our lives. We thank you for the church body. We thank you for the reminders of your saving grace and saving mercy. It's good to understand what we've been saved from. We thank you that your word clearly reveals that to us. It's consistent with 
who you are. It's consistent with your word. It's consistent with the very gospel that you call us and commission us to go out and to proclaim and to make disciples of all the nations to the ends of the earth. It's also consistent with your glory. And so help us to be a people that are unashamed, that are bold, that speak this truth because it is loving to do so. And also speak the truth in love to those around us. To know that those around us are blinded by sin. They're under the power of the evil one. Yet we know the power is in the gospel. It's your power for salvation. And so help us to be people who are bold proclaimers of truth. And to know that the power lies in you. And yet we are called to be faithful. And to see you work through our efforts. So we thank you for giving us this great commission and the great privilege it is to represent you in this world, in this world of darkness, that we would shine as lights and be salt in preserving the great and rapid decline of society. Uh, Use us, uh, even here in Connecticut, to, to do your will and to make your truth shine, your gospel and glory shine.